Hey, writers, join our first draft weekly writers club. We meet every Tuesday from 12 to 1 Eastern time. For more information, go to writingclassradio.com and click on the classes tab. I'm Allison Langer. I'm Andrea Askowitz. This is Writing Class Radio, where you'll hear true personal stories and learn a little bit about how to write your own stories. Together, we produce this podcast, which is equal parts heart and art. By art, we mean the craft of writing. By heart, we mean the truth in a story. No matter what's going on in our lives, writing class is where we tell the truth. It's where we work out our shit. There's no place in the world like writing class, and we want to bring you in. So I just want to stop right here and tell you, listener, that if you're not listening to the very end of our podcast, you might be missing out on some really great opportunities and opportunities to support us. So for $10 a month on Patreon, you can get an all-access pass to me. And that means that if you have a story and you don't know where to publish it, you can email me and we can discuss where and how to get that story published. And for $25 a month, you can get that pass to me plus a writing class a week with Allison. And that class is so awesome. It meets every Tuesday at noon Eastern, 12 to one. It's a great community and it's great practice. It's on Zoom. So it's really easy. Anybody can join from anywhere. And just, we were just talking in our last class about, you know, with the students and I got to just brag us up a little bit, but everyone has said they haven't found anything like this out there. This class, they can kind of pop in and out. They can come some Tuesdays. They don't, they're meeting community. They can send their essays to other people in the community and to get feedback so they can keep moving forward with an essay. And it's great. I mean, literally $25 a month. That's like some of the months have five weeks. It's like almost free. Yeah. It comes to $6 a session. I've been taking writing classes for like 25 years. There's nothing like writing class radio as writing classes. Yeah. And if you're trying to get in, you can either jump on our website and join for $10 a month or jump on Patreon and just sign up for 25. If you're unsure and you want to try it out for free, just email me at allison at writingclassradio.com and I'll send you the link. You can try it for free. We recognize that writing class is scary, but we try to make it less scary and totally fun. I'm so excited about today's show because we're featuring a story by Amanda Serenyi. She actually calls herself a writer and reluctant accountant, which is great. I wonder which is, um, you know, when you're like avoiding writing, does she go to accounting or does she do her writing when she's avoiding accounting? I'm so excited that we have her story on the air and I wanted to talk about why. And this is because her story hits us, me, me, and I know you, Allison, hits us in the heart because of the subject matter. I don't want to give too much away, should I say? No, no. Let let, let, let people start listening. It's so well written. I think it's just, it's so easy to follow that it's better if if the story just evolves without us blah, blah, blahing about it. Okay. Well, it is really well written, but the reason we picked it or the reason I picked it is because of the subject matter. And this is relevant to anyone who's trying to get their story published. Sometimes editors are like, wow, that really talks to me. And this story really talks to me and talks to you. And I and so I feel like this episode, while you know we try to be equal parts heart and art, this one's going to be more art because we're going to delve into how this story set off a whole bunch of thoughts and feelings that we have 
based on the subject. I just wanted to get that out up front. We'll be back with Amanda Serenny's story after the break. I'm Allison Langer, and every Tuesday from 12 to 1 Eastern Time, I host First Draft. It's a class, kinda, because you'll get a little bit of instruction, but mostly it's a group where you come together with other writers online, write to a prompt and share what you wrote. It's the only way to get better. Come join me. Check out all our classes at writingclassradio.com or go to patreon.com slash writingclassradio to learn more. Have you ever thought, I'd love to have a podcast just like this one? Well, I can help. My name is Matt Kundal, and everyone at my company, the Sound Off Podcast Network, had a hand in making this show. Whether it was about the sound, the discoverability, or that you're just enjoying the show, we are all about the detail. If you think you have a podcast in you, reach out to me via email, matt at soundoff.network. Or check out the website and become one of the great podcasts we work with at soundoff.network. We're back. This is Allison Langer, and you're listening to Writing Class Radio. Here is Amanda Sereni with her story, A Vial of Friendship. Scrolling through sperm donor profiles during Valentine's Day brunch, my friend Virginia couldn't contain her excitement. Between mimosa sips and Benedict bites, she fawned over GPAs, height, and quirky hobbies. This one was a ginger baby, Virginia grinned. Her hair was the color of Tabasco braised carrots. Perfect, I said. Below the table, my fingernails carved half moons into my palms. Her focus on creating a mini-me chafed. It echoed my mother's insistence that I look just like her, and her refusal to acknowledge any resemblance to the man who was my donor. Being donor-conceived is an awkward, emotional grab bag, but even more so when your friend wants to use a donor. I smiled because it was expected, but feared my inner sourness would curdle our friendship. Virginia had just moved to San Francisco when she breezed into a mutual friend's party with a sassy leather jacket and that flaming red hair. A lawyer turned veterinarian, she was quick-witted, self-assured, and magnetic. We were both 38-year-old East Coast transplants prowling for friends in our new city. When she said she was looking for a job, I texted her my vet's info and suggested lunch. Over the first glass of Sauvignon Blanc at a sunny sidewalk cafe, we bonded over Grey's Anatomy, our demanding dogs, and childhoods pockmarked by divorced parents and disappeared fathers. With the second glass, I overshared my story of discovering at age 33 that my father was an anonymous donor, not the man who raised me, then left when I was 16. Virginia's jaw dropped when I repeated my mom's words. I always meant to tell you before you turned 30. As if her secret wasn't worthy of my angry befuddlement, my mom added, what does it matter? You're still you. Her glib response ignored my new reality. When half of you is, quote, anonymous, feeling whole is impossible. Being the product of a clinical transaction, not traditional love, stamped me with a scarlet A for ashamed. Finding out as an adult launched an identity crisis and trust issues I was still unpacking. Virginia's sympathetic listening rivaled my therapist's. When the bill arrived, we each had radiant sunburns and a new friend. Virginia became my regular plus one when my husband worked late. On her days off, we frequented matinees, nail salons, 
and yoga studios. She was my rock when my beagle's cancer overwhelmed me. As we approached 40, Virginia's desire for a child intensified, fueling her search for the right man. After my failed matchmaker attempts, she immersed herself in Bumble, Coffee Meets Bagel, and OkCupid. She dished up juicy details over long, rosé-doused afternoons. I reveled in her dating stories, but couldn't relate to her baby fever. Kids weren't on my bucket list. Pregnant friends danced into the doom, doom, doom. Another one bites the dust column before the music faded altogether. Selfishly, I didn't want to lose Virginia yet. Without a serious guy in the picture, though, I didn't need to worry. Then one crisp January night over a cheese plate, she confessed she was done waiting for Mr. Wright. I want to go the donor route, she said. Afraid of my response, she knitted her brows together and nibbled her lip. My eyes froze. My heart galloped. My stomach sank. No, I screamed to myself. Congrats, I guess, I said to her. She had found a community of like-minded mothers-to-be who believed a mother's love could conquer all. But like anyone with an unknown or absent father, donor-conceived people lived with thorny reminders of what was missing. Walks down the aisle, father-daughter dances, family trees, medical history forms, password security questions requesting paternal grandmother's maiden name every damn Father's Day. I gulped my dread in the last of my Pinot. You probably have some strong opinions, she said. I nodded and sucked my teeth. Just make sure your donor is comfortable being contacted when your child eventually wants to find him. Not if, I thought. When. Eventually, we all want to understand who and where we came from. She sat back as if shoved. I honestly hadn't thought about that. When I was conceived, my parents entrusted donor selection to the doctor. Virginia could choose the donor's attributes, including his accessibility. Still, open to contact or not, privacy laws protected the donor's identity until the child is 18. The mother is protected from the biological father claiming parental rights. Nothing protects the child from 18 years of wondering if his toes slope the same way, if his eyes have the same fleck of green, if he snorts when he laughs, too. Virginia was capable and caring, but humans have an undeniable urge to bond with biological relatives. Wasn't that what drove her desire to conceive in the first place? Just think about your child, I said, wishing my mother had. Don't seal off the possibility to connect with half of his or her genes. My own biofather's refusal to meet was a wound that refused to heal. Though I told Virginia I was glad she shared her decision with me, our friendship was at a crossroads. Even if she asked for my blessing, I wasn't sure I could give it. Weeks later, over Valentine's brunch, she asked, want to see my top pics? She thumbed through profiles on her phone like they were bumble matches. This one has only four vials left, she said with pride and urgency. The act now infomercial style of the website repulsed me. These vials were $1,000 each and represented a human child, not a Ginsu knife. Out of how many, I asked, pushing away my avocado toast. This clinic, quote, limited donors to 25 offspring. I tried masking my full body shutter by wrapping my cardigan tighter. 
Navigating relationships with my three 23andMe identified half-siblings has been challenging enough. Is it really better to grow up knowing a busload of half-siblings exist? Our waiter refilled Virginia's champagne flute, then knocked it over into her lap while removing her plate. We sopped up the sticky liquid and maligned him instead of continuing our sperm talk. We were nearly 40. Maybe she couldn't even get pregnant. Maybe this phase would fade like Pokemon Go or fidget spinners. By May, her boozy 40th birthday celebration became croissants and decaf. Virginia was pregnant. I sulked my way through congratulations. Another one bites the dust, mingled with disbelief that she actually bought sperm. Virginia was proud of her decision, hopeful for the future, and as prepared and morning sick as any expectant mother could be. I flicked a flake off the table, and with it, every donor-conceived pain point I hoped her baby would avoid. I'm sorry, she said. I don't want this to be awkward. Her empathy disarmed me. She had been sensitive to my feelings from day one, a true friend. She had nothing to be sorry for. I was the one who couldn't shake my past. You aren't my mom, I said, reaching for her hand. Your child's story will be different from mine. You'll be open, honest, and supportive from the start. I had thought I was ashamed of being donor-conceived, but really I was ashamed of not knowing something so vital about myself for so long. How I was conceived and who my father was wouldn't have mattered as much if it hadn't been a secret. The secret meant my mom was ashamed, but that didn't mean that I had to be. The following Valentine's Day, Virginia and I clinked glasses while her mom watched her new redheaded grandbaby. Still breastfeeding, Virginia limited herself to one glass, but otherwise, it was like nothing had changed. I mean, I don't know. Should we start with the writing? I mean, what do we talk about first? I'm like busting out. Oh, it's the greatest ending. I really like it was a very rewarding ending. So I want to start there and then go back to the top. So many essays that we receive, I'm like that ending, not taking it because it's too hard for us to try to figure out what people are trying to say. The job of the, the writer, the person who submits has to come up with what they've learned. And she does a great, great job of that. Because she did change. She did. She did realize that all of her judgment and all of her like, anger toward her mom and not because her mom used donor sperm, but because her mom lied to her. So she says at the very end, I was ashamed of not knowing the secret meant my mom was ashamed. So that's the whole revelation. I'm sorry. I was just going to say, I just got the chills again. Every time that comes up, it's just like, I get the chills. And don't you love Virginia? Yes. Because Virginia is so compassionate. And this is like, here are the narrators being like, not nice, not supportive. And Virginia like reaches out and says, I'm sorry. I'm so, I love her. And then it it disarmed Amanda. It disarmed the narrator. And she was like, oh, wow. She's always been such a good friend. Ah, you aren't my mom. She realizes you aren't my mom. You're going to be a different kind of mom. You're going to tell your kids the truth from the beginning. It was such a good transformation. I so loved the ending too. When I first was reading this, when it came in and I was reading it over and I was like, oh God, oh God, what have I done? Because 
most of our listeners already know this, but if they don't... I don't know if they do. Okay. Well, you and I both use donor sperm to have our children. Completely separately. Wait, I think we have to make this clear to our listeners that we didn't know each other when we got pregnant separately on our own using donor sperm. Both of us followed a very similar path, strangely. It's so bizarre. But the two of us now... Yeah. Hosts of Writing Class Radio both got pregnant, wanted to have children on our own, did not have a man for various reasons. I was a lesbian. You were a single straight woman. And we both bought sperm from a bank and got ourselves pregnant. The same bank. Oh, well, that's well. Yeah, but it is the biggest bank, the California Cryo Bank. But, you know, it's the biggest bank in the country. When you were reading it, were you thinking, holy fuck, I'm, I've screwed up my kid. Their life is going to suck. Are they feeling this way? Like all those things. But then when she got to the end and said it was about the secret, I'm like, oh, thank God. Okay. I'm not holding a secret. I'm going to be fine. You know, my kids already know. They know. I love that she gave me permission. Okay. But I was not thinking I fucked up my children for this reason. And this is a, this was the problem that I felt the narrator had the whole time. And this is why I wanted to yell at her. I thought that she was making assumptions, giant assumptions about like a grand population. She's like, um, let me see. Because that was making me really mad. But she turned it around, so I'm not mad anymore. But um, in the middle of the story, she's like, like anyone with an unknown or absent father, you can't speak for anyone with an unknown or absent father. You can't speak for everyone. You can only speak for yourself as a narrator. When it's time to walk down the aisle, the thorny reminders of what's missing. I was just like, "Uh uh-uh, sorry, no. I don't think, and I don't think I'm being defensive here, but I really don't think that my children who do not have a father are reminded constantly of the things they don't have. I don't. Mine do. I, when I was reading this, I totally related. Okay, and I even wrote an, an excellent, like what? She said reminders they of were what's missing. like what? And they worked for me. I totally she- 100% related to those. No, I thought they worked too. And I, they work for her, but I didn't like the grand assumption that anyone who was donor conceived or anyone whose dad left at 16 would then be like left with a giant hole. And I'll tell you why I think that. So my children have known from the very beginning that they have a donor. They have seen what his baby picture looks like. They have read his profile. They know that he was uh, good at baseball. Like they know that he's 6'2". They know so much about him. They also know that there are 14 donor siblings because there's on, on the website of the California Cryobank, there is a sibling registry. And so, and now we have a Facebook group that my children know about. We have met one of the siblings. My kids have met one of their half bio siblings. It was cool. It was so much fun. It was like they had like a a connection, a friend, like something in common. The kid is a little one year older than Tashi, my oldest. And my kids have the same biological donor and different two different moms because my my kids have the same donor. Obviously me, I'm the same mom, but. The, the same, I bought all the sperm. That's why when she starts talking about the vials and this one has this many vials, like I was like, oh my God, only four vials. Like I totally got into it because I was like, oh yeah, I bought that one. I remember having those same conversations with my friends. Well, should I buy this one? He has six vials. I'm going to buy all his vials. And then at one point I called because I only bought two vials and they were like, I got back on the website to buy more vials when the first insemination didn't work. 
the guy wasn't there anymore. Okay. And after you spend all this time trying to pick this perfect, it's like picking a boyfriend. I finally found my boyfriend and he was fucking gone. And I was like, no. And I called the bank and I was like, hey, listen, my donor's gone. Well, do you have any tennis players? And she was like, click, hung up on me. I had to call back and be like, no, no, no. Hi, do you have any more donor, you know, samples from donor number? Blah, blah, blah. Why did you mention the tennis player? I figured if he That's was gone, funny. I was going to find a tennis player because then I wouldn't have to pay for college. Because your kids were going to be that good at tennis? Yeah. Oh, God. Okay. I'm like, did Roger Federer donate? (laughs) Um, Yeah, you'd have to get a really good tennis player. This guy had some left, but he wasn't on the site anymore because he had too few. And so I just bought them all. But wait, I want to get back to this idea that... um, So when I told my children that um, there was a sibling registry, they were like vaguely interested. They were probably like 15 and 10. And I was like, do you want to see their pictures? They were like, all right. So I showed them some pictures. Then one of the donor kids called the donor and had a conversation with him. And I told my children that they have not asked to contact their donor, but we know who he is. We know his name. We now have access to him. And when I bought the sperm 18 years ago, it was, I don't know how it's working now. I think everyone is more open now, but at the time when I bought the sperm, the legal contract that I stepped into was when my kids turn 18, we will ask the donor if he's open to be contacted. So everything's changed now because of 23andMe. Like, obviously, one of the siblings from my donor was able to track down his actual biological father, call him up and say, hey, <laughs> I'm, um, I'm one of your donor kids. Anyway, so I, I want to talk about the way she talked about the um, sperm banks, and I, I thought she was right on with that. But I don't think it's fair for her to assume that anyone who does not have a father feels the absence the way she did. I want to interrupt because I don't think it's important for her to even assume this is universal. You're assuming. She didn't say, but like anyone yes, with an did. unknown or absent. You're right. You're right. Okay. She says, but like anyone with an unknown so that line could come out because what we really care about is her. So right now she's, it's pretty early on and she's acting like the authority on this. Actually, it's not that early on. She was making a general assumption. I wish she had said, Virginia, please be careful because what happened to me was I felt an absence of not having a father and please don't cut off the possibility of your children getting to know who their biological dad is in case they want to know, in case they care about how their toes slope, that there was like a beautiful like list of characteristics that she brought out that I thought, I I thought that was so well done, but I still don't think every single kid is going to have the same interest. Basically what we're discussing here is she told us what she felt by using a generalization. And that's bothering you. It didn't bother me at all. I didn't mind it at all because I do think the majority of people probably- Because you fell for the generalization. It was true to you. That generalization was true to you, but it wasn't true to me. So I was like, don't do that. And also, I just don't think it's good writing to make generalizations like that. I think you have to stay true to yourself. I think it's great writing here, but I think better writing is not to be general, to make assumptions. That's a point of view violation. It didn't bother me, but so that's just two opinions. So the narrator, that part made me crazy. I was like, no, it's good for the writers out there to hear this conversation because what bothers one person. And if I'm your editor or I'm the publisher, then I'm going to be like, yeah, yeah, let's do it. And if you are, then she just on this basic generalization, which she could have avoided may have not gotten published. So that's in 
important right. information for a writer to hear. And Allison, that's why I didn't want to publish it at first. But because she's open to us talking it out, I absolutely love this story. But that was the part that I was like, you know what? She doesn't get to talk for everybody. I want to go back to the part where she brings in the backstory. And I love this structure. She sets it up for us. They're having lunch. She's, you know, blah, blah, blah. Virginia had just moved to San Francisco. So in just like a couple paragraphs, she sets up the scene. And then over the first glass of Sauvignon Blanc at a sunny sidewalk cafe, we bonded over Grey's Anatomy, our demanding dogs, and childhoods pockmarked by divorced parents and disappeared fathers. So right away, we know what the story is going to be about, and we know what they both like. I love getting information about the narrator. So that was awesome. So now we get information about both the narrator and Virginia. With the second glass, which everyone totally gets out there, I overshared my story. And then we get the backstory of discovering at age 33 that my father was an anonymous donor, not the man who raised me, then left when I was 16. Many, many people want to wait until the middle or the end to, to give you that, that bit of information. And I don't like surprises. You beat that out of me right away because writers think, I'm going to surprise him at the end. This is not fiction. This is memoir, right? We need to draw people into our story. And by her saying that right there up at the top, I was in. Dad left at 16 and that she overshared and talked all about finding out at 33 that she was conceived by a donor. Yeah. And that her mom hid it from her. Yeah. She tells it right away. And this is very excellent seed planting. Really great writing. Virginia's looking at donor profiles. One of them has red hair. And then the narrator says the idea of like creating a mini me or trying to create a mini me really bothered her. She said the mini me chafed because it reminded her of her mom. So this whole story is really about her relationship to her mom because it's about her her, the way that her mom didn't tell her. So she set that up right from the beginning. It's like sort of just like a, a little, it's a little seed planted. Did you try to create mini me's? Did I? Yeah. I mean, I got my donor had, he was tall, which I am not. Um, but he had blonde hair and green eyes. And remember, I picked the green eyes. I had blue eyes, but I picked green eyes because the the last guy I was like totally crushing on had green eyes. And I was really trying to recreate this guy. And so one of my kids, my youngest does have greenish eyes. They're mostly green. Sometimes they look blue, but the other two have blue eyes and they do look like me. We all have very like langers just have very strong, like big round eyes and weird noses that poke up in my kids do all kind of <laughs> resemble each other. Yeah. And me. Yeah. Yeah. Mini yeah, me's. yeah of course yeah. you want your kids to kind of look like you. Didn't you? Um, I, yes, I did. Like I chose a donor that, that had um, curly hair and light eyes and um, was athletic. So Vicky, my wife ended up using my sperm, but before that she had like this whole spreadsheet situation where she was like assigned like different different attributes to each thing like smart got like two points and she wanted a Jewish donor which is bizarre did you do that did you assign attributes like how'd you choose well I did want somebody who seemed kind and um, athletic and so when I was reading the profiles like or you know any sort of facilitator uh, comment I wanted them to say he just when he walked in, he was kind. I mean, not like they would write that down what a dick he was, but, you know, because then who would buy the sperm? But I did when I was searching for donors, you could hear in the voice of the person, whatever they were writing. Like one guy was like, 
I just want to pass my good genes along. And I was like, vomit, you know, and then some were musicians, some were artists, like it depended. You could kind of see this guy was a swimmer. So no, not tennis. No, I couldn't find a tennis person. That's why I called. I want to sort of explain the process a little to the listener because the donor has to commit to the job for a year. So they go in every week and um, this is how it was 18 years ago. And they would get paid, I think, $75 um, a donation, but it's a weekly. So it adds up, but you don't just go in as a donor one time so that the facilitators, the people who work at the bank get to know the donors. And then they do make comments about the donors' personalities in their own words. And that's what you're talking about, in ter- right? When you're saying they would write on their notes, very nice guy or whatever. The donors also, they have to kind of write a little essay. They they have to answer questions in their handwriting. So I could see my donor's handwriting, which was cute. And I also got an audio So I heard his voice. They interviewed my donor and he actually said, well, I thought donating sperm would be a fun way to make some extra cash. And when I heard him say that, I just thought that was the most honest, adorable. It was not the like, yeah, I just want to, you know, my sperm's the best. And like, he didn't do that. He just thought it would be a fun way to make some extra cash. I wanted to make a couple comments and I that I really loved about her essay that were super subtle. She drops in that she has a husband, you know, in her conversation when my husband worked late. And it's so we get little bits of information about her without getting a whole bio. She says she was my rock when my Beagle's cancer overwhelmed me. On her days off, we frequented matinees, nail salons, and yoga studios. So we're becoming friends with Virginia and we're also becoming friends with this narrator. She talks about long rosé doused afternoons. And then, my God, when she starts singing, boom, 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 another one bites the dust. I was like, I love this girl. I loved it too. I wasn't expecting her to sing that. I started dancing. <laughs> that was a great delivery. Yeah. There was one part. Was cool. And we actually asked her if it was okay to, to, you know, really sort of talk about this. And there's a part in the essay where she says, when her, her friend, Virginia, says, I want to go the donor route. And she knits her eyebrows and nibbles her lip. Her eyes froze. My heart galloped. My summer sank. All those things are super, super cliche, super cliche. She's trying to explain her feelings, which is always important. We're always saying that in class. Like you're going to give us the details, but tell us how you're feeling about it. So this was her way. So I love the fact that she was doing this, but I feel like there may have been a better way instead of saying things that are cliche. I think it's the hardest thing to do is to explain physically an emotion. And she did try. And so I think A for effort. Yeah. Like to say that my heart galloped and my stomach sank is just pretty much what everyone kind of turns to when they're trying to express emotion physically. And maybe she just didn't need it. No. I screamed to myself, congrats. I guess that was her line. She delivered those really well. So maybe we didn't need my eyes froze, my heart galloped, my stomach sank. It could be a good place for her to go back, go back again into her backstory, into her story. Tell us a little bit more about um, what happened when she found out she was donor conceived, maybe. Because we don't really hear that conversation between she and her mom. She just finds out and that's it. So that may have been an interesting place to put a little bit more information it may have drawn us out of the That's story. That's a great and, idea. But we don't know it, right? But so it, it might be a, a good place to put it. Right before she says, no, or right after I scream to myself, congrats, I guess. 
then it really would slow down the moment if she then took us to the moment where she found out at 33. Yeah, that's a great idea. Because I, I want to know. Another thing I wanted to know is how her own bio dad refused to meet. How'd that go down? She just dropped that in, that her own bio dad refused to meet. How'd she find him? How did how did he say no? Maybe there, like any, yeah, there were a few, those two things that I would have liked more of. And then she did a little bit of that higher register thing we talk about. She says, eventually, we all want to understand who and where we came from. Did you find that offensive? Because I can't, I like that. Yes. I don't think, so do your kids want to know their donor? No, my kids do not know their donor. They know their donor conceived. Do they want to know? They've never asked me. I mean, my kids are 10, 13, and 15. They, they'll occasionally say, how tall was the guy? What, did he, didn't he have green eyes? Like, you know, or something like that. But they never ask anything. They never ask me, can we meet him or anything? Nothing. That's what I'm saying. I mean, maybe at some point, they all three of your children will step up and say, I want to meet the donor. But maybe they won't. And we don't know. That's why I don't think it, it's fair to generalize. If I were donor conceived, I would goddamn want to know. I want to meet the donor that I used. I can't wait to meet him. Vicky doesn't want to. My wife, Vicky, she doesn't want to meet the guy. She's like, you know, what's that movie? Um, the Kids Are All Right. Yeah. That, that explored this issue. Um, that movie is pretty parallel to us because we both use the same donor and we both have children, you know, living together. But I don't I actually don't want to meet the donor. Know. See, everyone's different. I'm with Vicky. I don't want to meet him because I have a vision in my head of what he looks like and who he is. And I really don't need any more. I feel like the guy didn't donate so that he would then one day be involved in our life. One of the main reasons I had, I used you know, a sperm donor, Anonymous, is because I had just gone through a divorce. It wasn't a big deal, but I thought that man just took money from me and things and, 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 you know, it was, it was violating. And I was like, what if I now had to share my kids with him? And I was like, no way. I'm going to have my kids. They're going to be mine. No one's ever going to take them away from me. And then I'll find somebody else. That's why eventually we all want to understand who and where we come from is not quite true. We don't know that everyone wants to know. I mean, eventually I wanted to know. I know where I come from. I'm talking about my kids. I know, but she is talking about Virginia's kids because she wanted to know where and who she came from. But we don't know that Virginia's kids are going to want to know the same way. I feel like it's safe for her to generalize here. But you just said that your kids have never asked. They're young. My kids have the option to see them. Well, you're just speaking from your experience, but I think you guys, you don't know where eventually they'll get to. Right now, it's a no. But eventually they probably will. I do agree with her. And I love this part. So it's it's again know. like the fact that we disagree is is good because what we are getting, what the narrator's getting, what the writers out there are getting, what our listeners are getting is that your story is gonna land differently on every single person. Well, you agree with that assumption. I think it could have been said the exact same way, just staying true to her rather than making an assumption about what other people might think or, or want. And then I don't know. I do think that maybe my children might want to know their donor at some point, but I'm really surprised that they haven't wanted to know him yet, especially because we know who he is. You said a lot, like being specific is, is, is often, is most of the time, very universal, right? So what you're saying is even if she's specific, it's still going to relate to everyone. And I agree with you. I love that she was general because immediately pulled me into her story and it made me feel like she was talking to me. 
Oh, the other thing that I thought she said did really well was like this on the sperm <laughs> bank, the infomercial kind of act now. They do act like that. Oh my God. I called around to different sperm banks when I was when I was searching at first, and some of them were like, well, we have a red dot special. Like that's how it felt. Like they were like, some of them had their specific donors on sale for some reason. And I was like, Ooh. <laughs> that's funny. It really felt like that. There was a guy who was five, seven, everything about him was awesome. But like, I was like, I think he's on sale because he's five, seven. No one was saying why, but that guy was on sale at like a, a different bank. I wanted to reiterate something that I find very, very important that I feel like she did really well. She always, at the end of pretty much every like subject um, or every thought or every situation, she really got back to her feelings about what she wants to say to Virginia. Just think about your child. Don't seal off the possibility to connect with his or half genes. So that could have been enough. But then she tells us my own bio father's refusal to meet was a wound that refused to heal. So I don't think she has to go into that because that's not what this story is necessarily about because it's more about her mom keeping the secret. But I loved knowing how she felt. And I thought that was really, really well done. I love this narrator. I do. I trust her. I'm with her. Amanda's essays have been published by Fatherly, Severance Magazine, and AnonymousUs.org. Portions of her story have been featured in New York Magazine's The Cut and World Magazine. She's currently querying her memoir, Family of Strangers, about her donor-conceived discovery. Along with her husband and dog, she splits her time between San Francisco and Mammoth Lakes, California. Thank you, Amanda Serenyi, for sharing your story. And thank you for listening. This episode of Writing Class Radio is produced by Matt Kundal of Sound Off Media, Allison Langer, and me, Andrea Askowitz. Social media content is by Mia Pennycamp and me. Theme music by The Amadians. Additional music by Poddington Bear. There's more writing class on our website, writingclassradio.com, including video classes, stories to study, and editing resources. A new episode will drop every other Wednesday. So look for us. There's no better way to understand ourselves and each other than by writing and sharing our stories. Everyone has a story. What's yours? Come on a journey like no other, where you will discover many roads that will lead you to a happier, healthier, and more stress-free life. And the beauty is, you don't need any vacation time for this adventure. The journey will come to you. Join Avery Rich on your very own journey into yoga, Along the way, she will demystify yoga poses and guide you into a yoga posture or short sequence, all in less than 15 minutes. You have nothing to lose but stress. The Journey into Yoga podcast. It's not for people who like yoga. It's for people who don't like yoga. Follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at AveryRich.com.